This law is the product, to a large degree, of the political preferences refracted through the constitutional theories of judges and lawyers. It has almost nothing to do with history or with the original understanding of particular provisions. Thus, asked by a student why his constitutional law class would not be reading any of the Federalist, a famous constitutional law professor at an elite law school responded that the Federalist has nothing to do with constitutional law. The sad thing is that the professor was right, because today's constitutional law is not constitutional at all. Even originalist judges' application of the Constitution to real cases, as we will see, is far removed from Thomas Jefferson's test of the Constitution's meaning. Quote, The true sense in which it was adopted by the states, that in which it was advocated by its friends. Unquote. Jeffersonian judges have seldom dominated the Supreme Court, certainly not in the last three quarters of a century. This book's goal is to explain how the Constitution was understood in the first place, and then to chronicle the federal court's history of dealing with it. It will show how we went from the Constitution's Republican federal government, with its very limited powers, to an unrepublican judgeocracy with limitless powers. The approach is historical, to see the Constitution as we should see it, in its original context, as it was originally understood, and to chart over the course of two centuries how we got from there to here. Perhaps more than anything else, the politically incorrect guide to the Constitution provides further illustration of the old adage that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Chapter 1 What Made the Constitution? Revolution and Confederation Guess what? The American colonists fought to rid themselves of an intrusive government they couldn't control. Does that remind you of nine unelected oracles in robes? The Articles of Confederation were not designed to create a new nation, but to protect the rights of the states that were joined as the United States. Why do we have a federal constitution anyway? Before we can understand the Constitution's meaning, we have to have an idea of its purpose. There were 26 British colonies in the New World when the American Revolution began. They had distinct histories, and they had been founded for distinct purposes, at distinct times, by distinct groups of people. The British government essentially displayed an attitude of benign neglect toward the American colonies, including the 13 that ultimately joined together in 1775 to fight for their rights. It did not, for the most part, legislate regarding their internal affairs, and it did not tax them internally. Each of the colonies had its own government, including a governor and an assembly with a representative element. The colonists grew accustomed to considering their colonial governments as analogous to the British government in England. The British had their king, House of Lords, and House of Commons, made up of elected members, while Virginia, for example, had its appointed governor, its council, and its House of Burgesses, the first elective assembly in the New World. Colonial charters, which described how the government of a particular colony worked, often included guarantees to the colonists of their rights. Thus, Virginia's charter said that King James I's colonists there would have all the rights of his subjects in England. When one governor of colonial Virginia left office, a new one with a new commission replaced him. These commissions often included new guarantees of the colonists' English rights. People in Virginia, the first, largest, and most populous colony, sanguinely enjoyed their ongoing status as Englishmen. The Trouble Begins Well, not entirely as Englishmen. They had no representation in Parliament, 
and after the middle of the 17th century could not export goods from Virginia without transshipment through England. This regulation of commerce, as it was called in those days, seemed a small price to pay for inclusion in the British Empire, which benefited colonists and denizens of the home islands alike. None of this is to suggest, however, that there was never conflict between the colonies and England over events in the New World. There certainly was. In the 1750s, Virginians bridled at the attempt of one of their governors to charge them for land patents in the Pistole Fee Controversy. The elected House of Burgesses insisted to the royally appointed governor that he had no authority to tax the colonists and that this new fee amounted to a tax. In the end, the governor backed down. The real theoretical difficulty arose in the 1760s, when Britain won the Seven Years' War, 1756 to 1763, which in America was called the French and Indian War, 1754 to 1763. This First World War had begun with a skirmish started by a young...